the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blind is producing. Glad to have you along for the ride. We're going to talk with Gary Moreland. He's a dad and he's the author of A Family Shaped by Grace, How to Get Along with the People Who Matter Most. Through most of uh, the lives of his children, he was not a believer. In fact, he drank too much alcohol and spent a lot of time in front of the TV paying very little attention to his family. The foreword to the book is written by his daughters, and I tell you, it's one of the sweetest forewords I've ever read. They're brutally honest about what was life be- uh, life was like before and what life is like now uh, after their dad decided, I'm going to follow Jesus. So we're looking forward to that conversation later this hour. And then in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with John Malcolm. He's the vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the president's um, nominee for FBI. He t- tweeted that he will nominate Christopher Ray. Um, he has a bit of a history in Washington, and he's currently in private practice. We'll talk more about his background and qualifications with John Malcolm in the 5 o'clock hour. And then we'll also talk with Maureen Ferguson. She's a senior policy advisor at the Catholic Association. We're going to talk about the... Um, Unanimous passing of House Resolution 390, the Refugee Relief Act. This is the first effort in Washington passed by the House to provide financial assistance to those who are victims of genocide and persecution because of their faith. Now, ISIS says that their favorite victim victims are Christians. Yazidis have also suffered, as have some Muslims. And as you probably have heard, many Christians don't go to the refugee camps because they are singled out by those within those camps and are subject to genocide and persecution. This would uh, seek them out and do a number of things, which we'll talk about with Maureen Ferguson. What we're asking you to do is to call your U.S. senator. We uh, hear stories about the persecuted church. We know what's going on in various places. We are concerned. Some of us are praying for them. Uh, This is an opportunity to do something specific that would uh, uh, divert a, a well, a bit of uh, tax money that's already being spent through the U.N. that has no interest in, concern for, or provision for people who fall in this category, persecuted and the subject of uh, genocide, designated by the U.S. government under the last administration. So this is a, a, an opportunity to do something um, very tangible for uh, persecuted believers. So uh, we'll tell you more about that. Uh, and we're talking about House Resolution 390, by the way. You don't need to know all the details, although uh, we can tell you how to um, to read them. But we need to let our senators know it's time for us to do something as a follow-up to this genocide uh, designation. Well, top members of the president's intelligence team faced a tense Senate hearing today as they declined to discuss conversations with the president about the FBI's Russia investigation, but denied they were ordered to act inappropriately. The witnesses before the Senate Intelligence Committee were prepped with uh, questions in the wake of the report that uh, Trump pressured one of them, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats, to help wind down the Russia probe. Well, Coates and others gave a blanket denial, saying they did not face pressure regarding any investigation 
election. But they repeatedly declined to discuss details of their talks with the president, frustrating some Democratic senators and a couple of Republicans. In a hearing that served as a prelude to ex-FBI director James Comey's appearance before the same panel on Thursday. We are in a public session here, Coates told the Senate Intelligence Committee. I don't feel it's appropriate to share confidential information here. Well, Coates, however, said that he intends to answer such questions in private after consulting with the White House legal counsel. Well, on Thursday, committee members are expected to ask Comey whether Trump pressured him to slow or conclude the investigation into whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russia in the 2016 White House race and specifically to stop investigating former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. He's previously said under oath uh, before a, a, a congressional panel that he was not. However, there's now conflicting information of notes he uh, reportedly took of meetings with the president, although no one's actually seen them. The president last month fired Comey, saying that he wasn't good uh, doing a good job. Everybody thought that was a great idea when their uh, particular interests were being violated. But now it's uh, political football, his future and under what circumstances all of this happened. National Security Agency Director Admiral Mike Rogers also testified before the committee. He said, I have in the three plus years leading the agencies, to the best of my knowledge, never been directed to do anything I believe to be illegal, immoral or inappropriate or have felt pressure to do so. I think he actually said unethical, but uh, he was speaking to the committee. Rogers also expressed a desire to discuss the matters in private, but not before talking with the White House legal uh, team. Also testifying Wednesday were Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and Acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe. Rosenstein, he declined to talk about why Attorney General Jeff Sessions recused himself from the Russia investigation and what role the AG played in Comey's firing. McCabe declined to discuss his conversations with Comey or the loyalty pledge Trump purportedly asked Comey to take before firing him. I'll let Comey speak uh, to this himself tomorrow, McCabe said. All four witnesses declined to answer directly when asked uh, whether they kept notes on their Russia-related discussions with the president. The Washington Post has reported overnight that Trump had had approached, rather, Coates about pressuring the FBI to back off uh, its probe on Flynn and had asked Rogers to deny there was evidence to coordinate with Russia. Virginia Senator Mark Warner, the top Democrat on the committee today, said he was uh, disappointed by Rogers' response and said Rogers and Coates had the chance to lay to rest questions about Trump allegedly pressuring members of the U.S. intelligence community. Well, committee chairman uh, North Carolina GOP Senator Richard Burr called Wednesday's hearing a debate reauthorizing a key part of the U.S. surveillance law that is set to expire later this year. This is not the time to needlessly roll back our capabilities, Burr said at the start of the hearing. However, Warner made clear at the opening that he would ask the witnesses about the investigation into whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russia and if Trump asked any of them to try to squash or quash rather the FBI's probe. Comey purportedly wrote a memo stating Trump tried to get him to back off the investigating uh, back off investigating Flynn. Well, the back-to-back hearings come as the White House grapples with the fallout from Comey's firing, which led to the appointment of a special counsel to take over the Russia investigation in an effort to prevent even the appearance of Oval Office interference. Russia's role in the uh, presidential election of 2016 and ensuing congressional and FBI investigations into uh, Moscow's ties with Trump associates has dogged the president since he took office. My guess is it will continue to do so over the first four years of his first term. As I mentioned, James Comey is uh, set to testify, uh, and uh, there uh, typically there's an embargo over testimony that is submitted to the committee prior to 
the uh, public uh, oral testimony. This time around, that was not the case. There apparently was no embargo or the testimony was leaked. There is some information uh, that we now know. The prepared remarks for his opening statement released by the Senate Intelligence Committee um, it makes clear that Comey repeatedly assured the president he was not personally under investigation. Well, Comey's statement detailed several meetings that he had with the president dating back to January. And he extensively describes a January 27th dinner where he said the president told him, I need loyalty. I expect loyalty. Well, more on that and the speculation swirling around this uh, testimony. In fact, it's uh, almost comical if it weren't so serious to hear uh, how some of the uh, individuals anticipating the Comey testimony are characterizing it, some comparing it to uh, Watergate in, in terms of the seriousness of it, and speculating what he will and will not say. Well, he hasn't spoken yet. The most we have thus far from Comey directly is his opening statement. I'll tell you more about that in just a few moments, as well as the hysteria anticipating what may happen. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Gary Moreland, A Family Shaped by Grace, How to Get Along with the People Who Matter Most, coming up in our next segment. While suspense has been building inside the Beltway ahead of uh, James Comey's testimony to Congress, one can only hope that the suspense mer- is uh, merited by virtue of what's actually said. Apparently in Washington, D.C.'s bars have set a Comey happy hour. Washington is holding its breath for to- uh, testimony. Pretty high stakes at congressional hearings, president to live tweet. Uh, some are saying it's a defining moment. Intel officials deny the president pressured them, but the White House lawyers are facing the Clinton era legal trap. All of that um, anticipate in anticipation, rather, of the Comey testimony. CNN, for example, has spent 10 hours on Comey before a single word was uh, ordered, uh, uttered. Rather, They have a Comey countdown logo. Uh, the first started at 3.01 a.m. on Monday, a full three days before hearing uh, the hearing was slated to start. There's endless pre-game coverage, like the Super Bowl, not-so-subtle signals to the public that what's about to happen is really, really, really important, which it may be, but we don't know. The speculation may exceed the um, the actual event itself. Well, the prepared remarks for his opening statement, which were released by the committee earlier today, uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee, make clear that Comey repeatedly assured the president that he was not personally under investigation. His statement detailed several meetings he had with the president dating back to January, and he extensively described one particular dinner, the 27th, where he said Trump told him, I need loyalty, I expect loyalty. Comey plans to say as well that Mr. Trump sought help ending uh, any probe of former National Security Advisor Flynn, uh, reiterating rather previously published reports about that claim. Uh, Comey's testimony will mark his first Capitol Hill appearance since his firing a month ago. Lawmakers are pretty eager to hear his side amid a raft of reports suggesting that Trump had pressured him over investigations of the uh, Russian meddling in the election and coordination of his associates. Trump has denied pressuring Comey as well as uh, any collusion with uh, Russia. If Comey's opening statement is any uh, gauge, Thursday's testimony will be explosive. The seven-page document, however, began with a piece of good news for the president confirming his past claims that Comey assured him that we are not investigating him personally. Comey first gave the assurance during his first meeting at Trump Tower on the 6th of January during a discussion about a salacious and widely contested uh, anti-Trump dossier and reiterated the uh, statement in subsequent conversations. Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna 
Romney McDaniel highlighted those passages, tweeting Wednesday, Comey's testimony reconfirmed what the president of the United States has been saying all along. The president was never under investigation. Well, Comey admitted that when Trump uh, later said that he wanted honest loyalty, Comey assured you will get that from me. He later wrote in a personal memo he may have interpreted that term differently from Trump. Well, the testimony went on to describe a February 14th Oval Office meeting, which concerns a key moment that later leaked into the press reports and was fueled, uh, rather has fueled Congress's interest in hearing from Comey post-firing. Comey said that when he and Trump were alone, he asked to speak about Flynn, who had just resigned as national security advisor over misleading Vice President Pence over his contacts with the Russian ambassador. According to Comey, Trump said Flynn is a good guy and I hope you can uh, let this go. Comey said he later prepared a memo about the conversation, noting that he understood Trump to be referring only to Flynn and not the broader Russia investigation. I had understood the president to be requesting that we drop any investigation of Flynn in connection with false statements about his conversations with the Russian ambassador in December. I did not understand the president to be talking about the broader investigation into Russia or possible links to his campaign. I could be wrong, but I took him to be focusing on what we had just what had just happened with Flynn's departure and the controversy around his account of his phone calls. However, Comey said Trump called him on the 20th or rather the 30th of March and complained that the Russia probe was a cloud over his administration. Comey claimed Trump asked what could be done to lift the cloud. Um, They last spoke on the 11th of April. Trump fired him a month later with officials citing, in part, Comey's controversial handling of Hillary Clinton's email case. Well, tomorrow is the day that Mr. Comey will speak for himself. And I would suggest we wait to see what he actually says rather than speculate about what may or may not uh, be about to drop. It may, in fact, be an explosive uh, interview on the part of the Intelligence Committee. Maybe not. We'll just have to wait, uh, wait to see. Well, President Trump announced a new round of 11 judicial nominations today, including three nominees for high-profile federal appeals courts. One of the nominees, Colorado Supreme Court Justice Allison Ide, is being tapped by the president to fill a vacancy on the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals created when Justice Neil Gorsuch was confirmed for the Supreme Court in April. Justice Ide was on Mr. Trump's list of conservative potential Supreme Court nominees that he presented to voters during the presidential campaign last year. She served on Colorado's high court since 2006 and previously was the state's solicitor general. Mr. Trump also is nominating U.S. District Court Judge Ralph Erickson of North Dakota for the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals and University of Pennsylvania Law School Professor Stephanos Bibas to serve on the 3rd U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Judge Erickson has served on the district court since 2003. The White House calls Mr. Bibas uh, director of the University Supreme Court Clinic, one of the nation's leading experts in criminal law and procedure. He has argued six cases before the Supreme, uh, the Supreme Court, taught at the University of Chicago Law School, and served from 1998 to 2000 as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. At least two of the nominees, Justice Ides and Ide rather, and Mr. Bebus, are listed as legal experts by the Conservative Federalist Society, which has advised Mr. Trump on judicial nominations. Carrie Severino, chief counsel and policy director of the Judicial Crisis Network, called the latest wave of nominees a fantastic list. We'll see if the Senate says the same. But again, some uh, 11 judicial nominations, a new round announced by the president earlier today. Well, as the White House is bracing for former FBI Director James Comey's testimony tomorrow, 
Uh, Sources tell ABC News the relationship between President Donald Trump and Attorney General Jeff Sessions, one of his most loyal supporters, has become so tense that Sessions at one point recently even suggested he could resign. Well, the friction between the two men stems from the attorney general's abrupt decision in March to recuse himself from anything related to the Russia investigation, a decision the president only learned about minutes before Sessions made the announcement publicly. Multiple sources say the recusal is one of the top disappointments of his presidency so far and one the president has remained fixated on. I don't think Trump can afford to lose another cabinet member, but his anger over the recusal has not diminished with time. Two sources close to the president say that he has lashed out repeatedly at the attorney general in private meetings, blaming the recusal for the expansion of the Russian investigation, now overseen by special counsel and former FBI director Robert Mueller. But sources say the frustration runs both ways, prompting the resignation offer from session. Asked by ABC News if the attorney general had threatened or offered to resign, Justice Department's Spokesman Sarah Eisgar Flores declined to comment. Meanwhile, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer was asked if the president still has confidence in his attorney general. He said uh, he could not say I have not had that discussion with him, Spicer said. Well, many, of course, interpret that as a uh, a deliberate uh, effort to try to obfuscate. But if he didn't have the conversation, maybe he really can't comment. You can interpret for yourself. So you can't say if he has confidence in his attorney general, Spicer was asked. Spicer responded, I said, I have not had a discussion with him on the question. I don't. Um, If I haven't had a discussion about a subject, I tend not to speak about it. He was responding to ABC News' John Santucci and Jordan Phelps at the press conference earlier in the day. So we'll, we'll uh, find out what happens moving forward on that, um, on that score. Today, President Trump told Congress uh, to keep toiling and send him a health care bill, saying Obamacare is in absolute turmoil and claiming victims of Ohio and other places as Republicans struggle to reach consensus on a replacement plan. The Senate doesn't seem all too disposed to come up with a plan very quickly, or perhaps not at all. Standing on a tarmac in Cincinnati, Mr. Trump decried premiums that have exploded in the Buckeye State and in other states. A major player, Anthem, announced on Tuesday that it's leaving the Obamacare exchange in Ohio likely leaving nearly 20 counties without an option next year. Obamacare is in a total death spiral, and the problems will only get worse if Congress fails to act, Mr. Trump said. Obamacare is dead. I've been saying it for a long time. Mr. Trump met with two families who say they were adversely affected by the 2010 Affordable Care Act before moving on to a bigger speech on his infrastructure plans. Uh, One couple Um, own a commercial playground equipment company in Ohio and provided their 15 employees with health coverage before Obamacare's implementation. Yet their plan ran afoul of Obamacare's coverage requirements, so they were forced to seek coverage on the new insurance exchanges. They said the coverage wasn't affordable, wasn't accepted by their preferred doctor when uh, Rhea, the female in the couple, became pregnant with their first child. The president of the DSS Distribution Group, Inc., in Louisville, Kentucky, said the cost of health care options for his employees spiked by up to 150 percent following the advent of Obamacare. Well, President Trump focused on how they were harmed by Obamacare rather than what the emerging GOP plan might be able to do for them. That remains, at this point, something of a mystery. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Gary Moreland. He's the author of A Family Shaped by Grace, How to Get Along with the People Who Matter Most. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 37 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. As a teenager, Gary Moreland, my next guest, lived in an unhappy, dysfunctional family characterized by addiction and disharmony. Maybe some of you can relate. When he started a family of his own, he carried those destructive patterns with him. Yet he knew there must be a way for a family to find grace and love, even after hurt and distrust. So he set out to find it. His daughters, who wrote the foreword to A Family Shaped by Grace, testified to God's grace in their family and in their father's heart. Well, he offers in his book, simply titled A Family Shaped by Grace, How to Get Along with the People Who Matter Most. He offers timeless tools that will help families becoming uh, more loving, uh, whole and at peace with each other. A Family Shaped by Grace helps families break unhealthy patterns, save their family relationships, and learn how to generously offer grace to those that matter most. Well, Gary Moreland is a professional communicator with more than 30 years of radio experience, sharing his own life story and helping others share theirs. As a 25-year sober alcoholic, he described himself as a guy who should... Should have died, but didn't, with a wife who should have left, but stayed. If anyone knows the power of grace and forgiveness, well, it's Gary. He and his wife, Brenda, are the parents of author um, Emily Freeman and, uh, let's see, McQuillan Smith. He can correct me on that. Um, They live in North Carolina, and we are delighted to share their family story and this great resource of Family Shaped by Grace, how to get along with the people who matter most. Gary Moreland, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Hi, Georgine. How are you? Now, I'm certain I mispronounced your daughter's uh, name, so can you please correct me? Welcome to the club. Nobody <laughs> gets it right. My wife made up the name, so who's going to know how to pronounce a name that you made up, right? McGuillan? It's McQuillan. It's like Jacqueline, only with a mom. My. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Well, the name like Georgine, I'm used to, you know, <laughs> getting there, names yep, wrong. There and you go. I, I like to yep. try to get it right. Your daughters wrote the foreword to your book, and I loved that. They write, and I'm skipping from one paragraph and, and then down, you, they write that dad wasn't a believer for most of our childhood. And then a little later on, they write, until one day, dad stopped drinking. And a while after that, he told us he accepted Jesus. Uh, it's a remarkable story, the difference that they write about in, in you as a father. Um, so let's start there. Let's start with your uh, upbringing and where you began your family. Okay, Georgine. Well, uh, nothing spiritual in our family or anything. And, you know, when you read the, uh, uh, when you talked about some of the stuff uh, in your little introduction there about how family life was like. I just thought all that stuff was normal. My dad was an alcoholic. His dad was an alcoholic. Dad was like super unhappy. And there was a lot of, you know, you had to just walk on eggshells at home. We didn't really have friends over to home because you just never knew if something was going to have a big blow up or something. And there was just some dysfunction. But to me, it was all normal, you know, until I started getting a little older and then you get to be a teenager and you start observing, you know, I don't, my family, I don't think everyone is all that happy, meaning mainly my mom and dad. And so that started a little question that stayed in the back of my mind for a long time, because I just really didn't have an example of how to, how you're supposed to get along in a family or how you're supposed to uh, react when things happen. And so just time goes on, you, you, normal things happen, like you meet a girl, I love her, she's awesome, she's gorgeous, she likes me. And, but you don't, and she's got her own story and I got my own story. She, you know, I think we all come from some level of dysfunction 
you know, but maybe it doesn't dominate in our families. You know, mine kind of did in mine, and hers, you know, she had her own kind of things with fear and stuff. So you get married, and what happens? Hey, you pool all your negative resources, all your dysfunction, you pool it all together, and then start influencing each other that way, right? So that's kind of what we did, and we learned how to react to each other, and, you know, there could, you know, a lot of that would be arguing, a lot of that would be, uh, uh, you know, disagreements, fighting, and a few years, for a couple of years, we still deeply loved each other, cared about each other. We were just normally dysfunctional. But one day, Columbus, Indiana, Central Avenue, one of Brenda's old friends, Mary from, geez, she'd had her friend Mary for a long, long time, from elementary school and junior high into high school. Then they disconnected. Mary went off on her life and Brenda on hers. They're driving down Central Avenue. They cross, you know, cross traffic coming the other way. Brenda sees Mary. Mary sees Brenda. Mary calls Brenda to tell her something happened to her. And what had happened to her was she'd met someone, told her about Jesus. And the next thing you know, Brenda is talking to Mary's mentor or discipler. And next thing I know, my wife's a Christian going to church, and she's got her books all spread out on the uh, sofa and on the bed, studying and reading and really getting into it. Now she's got all these new friends, and but I'm not changed. You know, I'm still, I mean, I ended up, Georgine, I mean, I'm drinking three quarts of beer a day. Mm. Three quarts of beer a day, every single day for 14 years. I will say, though, when she became a believer, I looked back and I thought, I think my drinking stopped getting worse. Huh. And you know where it says in the Bible, like, uh, the, 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 the believing spouse sanctifies? I don't know what all that means, but, you know, the, the unbelieving spouse is affected, you know, sort of in an eternal way. Something, I don't know. But anyway, my drinking quit getting worse then, so I guess I peaked at the three quarts. But uh, then her friends would come over. I mean, we had some bizarre scenes in our house. Uh, her friends would come over, for, like church visitation, to get Gary saved. And Gary didn't know they were coming. And I'm sitting there watching the World Series, drinking my quart of beer. And they come in. I was like, oh, you know. So I set the quart of beer down, and they talked to me about Jesus. And, you know, I'm talking in a demeaning way now, Georgine, because that's how I felt at the time, yeah, you know. Yeah. And they, uh, I mean, one time they, like, they were leading me in the prayer to believe in Jesus. And I didn't, uh, I didn't realize they were doing that till we got done. I realized what they'd done. Now, how I would know this, I'm an unbeliever, okay? How I would know it's the prayer they led me in, I don't know. But you know what I said? I, when they got done, I said, no, uh-uh. I didn't know you were leading me in that prayer. I take it back. <laughs> hmm. I took it back, Georgine. Why would, how would an unbeliever, why would he care if someone let him in the, in the prayer of salvation? Just let him go away, believing that. Who cares, right? I think the Lord is being very possessive with, with my salvation and my understanding of it. And he was saying, Gary, you have not believed quite yet. And this is not your time quite yet, and you know enough that it's not your time. But my time did come later, and I was all by myself. Mm. Your Probably 10 years after, ten years ten years after, after that Brenda event. Was, uh, your daughter's yes, right yes. that one day Dad stopped drinking. A while after that, he told us he accepted Jesus. Uh, we have just about a minute. How did you accept Jesus when you were all by yourself? Probably, it was probably uh, 
two years after I quit drinking, which is a whole story in itself, you know, because you say, oh, I thought you became a believer and quit drinking. No, it was still Jesus, hmm. because then I could start thinking, right? And there is a, uh, you know, l- there is a thinking that goes with understanding the things in the Bible. And I knew the gospel because people had witnessed to me 10 bazillion times, all of Brenda's friends. And one day, Georgine, I just got down on my knees in the basement. It was like an out-of-body experience almost, in a way, because like, what do you think you're doing? I'm on my knees. Who are you, Gary Moreland? What are you doing down there? Lord, I give up. I give mm. up. I don't want my life. I've messed my life. I don't do anything with my life. Here, you take my life. And it was like, what are you doing? Lord, why are you calling him Lord? Who are you, Gary? And that changed it. Uh, Georgine, right then, I did believe. I truly believed. It was Lordship. It was uh, everything all there. I gave him the whole thing. You know, I've had to keep giving it to him over the yeah. years. <laughs> And my whole outlook, all of a sudden, the Bible became like, this is fascinating. And before, it was like a bunch of guys in sandals. Yeah. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, we're talking with Gary Moreland. He's the author of A Family Shaped by Grace, How to Get Along with the People Who Matter Most. The foreword is written by his daughters, and that's a real sweet tribute to what God has done in the life of their dad, Gary. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Gary Moreland. He's the author of A Family Shaped by Grace How to Get Along with the People Who Matter Most. In the first uh, section of your book, you tell your family story, where how far you got down, how far you went down, and how far you came up. But then you offer a family satisfaction assessment. Tell us about that assessment tool and how families can gauge where they are now as they uh, as they anticipate where the family might be able to go um, with encouragement from your own example. That's a great question, Georgine. It's uh, just a little, it's, it's not very technical. It's just a couple of really simple questions. In fact, I could ask you the questions now, and you could score your own almost. It's not about the quality of your family or uh, how good your family is doing. It's about how you feel about your family so that you have a starting place for things that might happen in the future so you can be encouraged. For example, one the first question might be, compared to what you'd like to see, how do you feel about the condition of your family relationships now overall in your whole family? Very simple. One would be mm, not good at all, 10 would be awesome, and, you know, five would be something in between. And then another question, there's only like five questions. Uh, most families have some areas of great relationships, but you also got some areas of challenging relationships. From your perspective, like you, Georgine, and your own family, I'd be asking you, mm-hmm. in the last five years, how have your most challenging family relationships in your family changed? You know, is it, is it way worse? That would be like a one. Is it way, way better? That would be like a 10. And so then, you know, there's a few more questions like that, that to help you then to have a little score on, you know, am I feeling pretty good about my family or am I actually realizing here that I'm not feeling too great about them? And then I try to point you based on this need that you might start feeling like, I'm not really happy with how things are right now. I want to do something. I point you to what it might be able to look like in your family or actually more feel like. And so there's a one phrase I really like is to, they say if you put something in front of yourself over time, you know, it influences you. It tends to become like a goal inside you. It becomes part of your soul a little bit, you know, when you keep seeing something. And so I like the idea of seeing something like this, and I call it the uh, family peace pole star. 
pole star, you know, one is a fixed point in the sky, and at night you can navigate by it, even though there's storms or, or a dark skies, you can still navigate by it. So my thing I like is we will become a family that roots for each other, replacing performance and manipulation with acceptance and grace, and we'll become a safe place to launch and a soft place to land. And that's how we want our family to feel. And if someone agreed with that and liked that and wanted your family to feel that way, I'd say, well, let's continue on then, for example, in the book and see how we can begin to go in that direction. And then we begin to get into what you mentioned, the timeless tools of family peace, which are all the things that are just in the Bible about our relationships. But we often don't really practically apply them with our family. How so I try you, to do that in the book. Yeah, how did you do that in your own family? You you come from a place of dysfunction. Your life is dramatically altered by your profession of faith. How did you begin to see that transformation in your family? Did you just sit down in the living room and say, this is what we're going to do? Or did it just yeah. naturally happen? Yeah, that sitting down in the living room doesn't work very good. <laughs> I actually tried that. <laughs> that didn't. That wasn't working good. Actually, Georgina had a discipler. I met a man. Lord brought a man in my life, Harold. And Harold, we began having conversations. He threw out the discipleship bait to me. Gary, you can give me a call sometime. And that's the invitation. I always, and I called him, and I must, I'll bet I had talked to him hundreds of hours. And I took notes, and I took it very serious. And I realized how his way of thinking was. And of course, it's all based on uh, scripture and living it out. And he, I mean, he was the first person I ever heard use the word scripture. I thought, wow, he's talking like that book is like something really awesome. And so, so I just never had met anyone like him, and I would even say that still to today. But he, I would ask him questions, practical questions about being a deacon in church, practical questions about Brenda and I are having a fight, we're having an argument, what about this? Uh, my kids want to go to the school. Um, this argument kind of thing happened between friends. Just any kind of practical questions. Uh, and he would first make me think about it, and then he would help me to see in the Bible, uh, not, 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 not chapter and verse directly, but he would help me see the principles uh, that I could to act consistent with. And so slowly it began to become real to me, and slowly, you know, coupled with reading the Bible, you know, the Lord, you, you read the truth in the Bible, right? It's a truth, but they're not bullets of truth. You know, it's a heart of truth. And so when you read, you, you begin to pick up uh, not just the, the, the truth of the words, you begin to pick up the personality of the author of the words, the, who he is and how he feels and how he says something, and the firmness that he has, the Lord I'm talking about, when he's firm and when he's not, when he's gentle and when he feels he needs to be more pushy. And you begin to soak that up, and it starts coming out of you after a while. And so coupled with Harold and coupled with the Bible, and of course being in church regular, my personality and my demeanor and just my whole self just began to change. And then, after a while, and this takes a while, you know, there's no buttons to push to make this happen in two months. But after being with Harold for, you know, two years or so, why, his words and attitudes start coming out of me and start influencing my family. And so, this is the power of discipleship. He has touched people in my family and spread through my family to people they know. 
he has touched people he's never met and never will meet. Hmm. So it was discipleship was a big deal. Yeah. You write that you'll find that your family is already wired for that contagious momentum to take hold. Is it a strong desire that families want to have the kind of uh, family life that encourages and nurtures uh, each member? Uh, what do you mean by that, that your family is already wired for, for that kind of contagious momentum that moves them forward? Well, we all know if you're sitting in a room and somebody starts raising their voice and you have a little disagreement coming, other voices start to get raised, then more and more voices start to get raised, and before you know it, you've got a lot of voices raised, and everyone has to talk louder be over each other. This is a small, pathetic example, okay? If one person in that room speaks quietly and calmly and is under control, it begins to inf- – it doesn't completely make everyone stop arguing, but it will temper – how uh, you know loud or just how disagreeable that argument can become. Anyway, it's, it has to do with that we're just the Lord. I've, I am convinced the Lord has made our families to be the most influential, contagious organism on the planet. And we pick up each other's attitudes. We hate the uh, lecturing me, but if you act a certain way around me, if you act calm around me, if you act generous around me, if you give me attention and make me feel valuable. I begin giving you attention, and you begin feeling valuable, and I begin acting generous to you, and I act calm with you. And the most powerful thing is when you really have your peace right, and you don't need your family to treat you a certain way so that you can feel good. Even when they treat you a way they shouldn't, you can still have an inner peace, and they can feel that confidence that you have. It can begin to rub off. You have a confidence and something that, where is that coming from? Uh, there's a story, I didn't put this in the book, but Tony Evans, the preacher, his dad came to Christ. I heard him tell a story one time because his wife, his, his mom, Tony Evans' mom, was hard on his dad, and his dad couldn't even read the Bible without his mom being mad at him. And he, one night he got up to read his Bible, and she comes downstairs, and Tony Evans' dad girds his loins because we're going to have another fight over me reading the Bible. And she comes down and says, I don't know how you are putting up with what I'm telling you and how hard I've been on you, but whatever it is you're seeing in that book, I'd like to know more about it. Mm. Because he had his peace right. He didn't argue with her about it. He didn't fight and disagree with her about it. And when I stopped drinking... When I told confessed to Brenda that I was an alcoholic, I thought we would have a fight. And she did the worst, best thing she could do. Instead of arguing, she said, oh, no, Gary, not you. And it broke my heart and made me feel like, well, I guess I'm not drinking for a little while anyway. And that was the end of it. Well, it is a, a tremendous family story and great encouragement and practical help for families who are dysfunctional and want to even have a vision of a better life. The book is titled A Family Shaped by Grace, How to Get Along with the People Who Matter Most. Gary Moreland, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Georgine. Appreciate much it. Much appreciated. Thank you, thank you. The book is published by Ravel. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blind is producing. This hour, we're going to talk with John Malcolm. He's the vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about Christopher Ray, who President Trump said he intends to nominate to be the, uh, to become the next FBI director. We'll talk more about who he is, what kind of background he has, and what kind of director we need. We'll also talk with Maureen.
Maureen Ferguson. She's a senior policy advisor at the Catholic Association. We're going to talk about House Resolution 390. It was passed unanimously last night in the House of Representatives. It is a Refugee Relief Act specifically targeted toward Christians, Yazidis, and other religious minorities who are the subject of genocide and persecution. Uh, We'll tell you more about that when she joins us later at the bottom of this hour. Meanwhile, yesterday, the Oregon Senate Rules Committee passed out Senate Bill 494. We've talked about it here before on the program. It was a party line vote. It was touted as a simple update to Oregon's current advance directive. The bill is designed to allow for the starvation and dehydration to death of patients with dementia or mental illness. Now, if you're not shocked by that, um, that raises some serious questions. Let me just repeat that. The bill is designed to allow for the starvation and dehydration to death of patients with dementia or mental illness. And maybe you don't know anybody with dementia or you're not familiar with anybody with mental illness, so it's difficult to uh, see how this might um, impact the state. But Senate Bill 494 is little more than states, uh, the state of Oregon colluding with the healthcare care industry to save money on the backs of mentally ill and dementia patients. After all, if they simply pass away, their beds are freed up, it costs less per patient, and you can move more people in. Well, the bill would remove current safeguards in Oregon's advanced directive statute that protect conscious patients' access to ordinary food and water when they no longer have the ability to make decisions about their own care. Gail Atterbury, in fact, we have been trying to uh, arrange an interview with her and hope to have a conversation tomorrow. She's the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. She says of this new uh, uh, Senate bill, or that was passed out of committee. It's been around for a while, but it's appalling what the Senate Rules Committee just voted to do. This bill, written in a deceiving manner, has as its goal to save money at the expense of starving and dehydrating dementia and mentally ill patients to death. Oregon law currently has strong safeguards to protect patients who are no longer able to make decisions for themselves, she went on to say. Nursing homes and other organizations dedicated to protecting vulnerable patients work hard to make sure patients receive the food and water they need. Senate Bill 494, pushed hard by the insurance lobby, would take patient care a step backwards and decimate patient rights. Oregon Right to Life is committed to fighting this terrible legislation every step of the way. And, of course, they've been in the legislature doing just that right up until this very moment. We have, Atterbury continues, already seen the outrage of countless Oregonians that the legislature would consider putting them in danger. We expect the grassroots response to only increase. And one of the reasons I'm bringing it to your attention now is in hopes that the grassroots response would increase. Senate Bill 494 was amended in committee yesterday. The amendment didn't solve the fundamental problems with the bill, however. And in fact, if you want to learn more about what the uh, bill, Senate Bill 494, will do, you can watch testimony made by the Rules Committee on behalf of Oregon Right to Life yesterday. And we've put a link to the LifeNews.com article that has a link to that testimony. Senate Bill 494 likely heads to a vote of the full uh, state Senate in the coming weeks. So there's still time to head this off before that full Senate vote. Three additional bills uh, that also remove rights from vulnerable patients were introduced this session as well. They are Senate Bill 239, Senate Bill 708, and House Bill 3272. There's a clear effort to move state policy away from protecting the rights of patients with dementia and mental illness and toward empowering surrogates to make life-ending decisions on their behalf. Now, they may do so uh, in their interest or in the interests of other 
um, uh, other um, institutions, elements, Atterbury uh, went on to say. Senate Bill 494 uh, makes many changes to advanced directive laws, eliminating uh, definitions that can leave patients' uh, directions left open to interpretation. It would also create a committee appointed rather than elected that can make future changes to the advanced directive without approval from the Oregon legislature. Now, when uh, Obamacare was passed, there was, uh, were references made to you know death panels, um, and that was just um, poo-pooed as ridiculous. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about here, a group of unelected people who have the authority to change advanced directives made by individuals regarding their future health care. Well, these, uh, this future, uh, this committee, uh, and again, appointed rather than elected, would have the authority to change uh, the advanced directives uh, without the approval of the Oregon legislature. This could easily result in further erosion of patient rights. Um, these, it seems to me, are very serious issues. Again, on the Georgine Rice Facebook page, I uh, put a link to the Life News um, article from the uh, regarding the Oregon Senate committee that passed a bill that would allow the starving of mentally ill patients and those with dementia uh, uh, to death. Um, and my hope is, as Gail Atterbury said, there's already been a hue and cry that that would increase as over the next uh, few weeks, uh, apparently, although I wouldn't wait a few weeks. Um, this is likely to come before the full Senate for um, a vote. And again, we're working on a conversation with Gail Atterbury uh, on that to give further details and what we can do to uh, to potentially uh, head this off. In other news, Homeland Security Secretary John F. Kelly sounded an alarm um, on Tuesday over an unprecedented spike in terrorist travel. That's the phrase he chose to use. Terrorist travel, including to the U.S., moving to shore up the defense of the administration's travel ban one day after the president's uh, tweet seemed to undercut his case before the Supreme Court. Well, the threat from terrorist foot soldiers is as great as ever, he said, and they are returning from training in Iraq and Syria home to Europe with orders to attack. Mr. Kelly said he expects some will try to reach the U.S., but his hands have been tied by the federal courts. Well, the secretary dismissed accusations that Mr. Trump's latest travel ban executive order discriminates against a religion, saying the president was relying on lists drawn up by Congress and the Obama administration to single out six countries for a 90-day halt. These are countries that are either unable or unwilling to help us validate the identities and backgrounds of persons within their borders, he told the Senate Homeland Security Committee. Bottom line, I have been enjoined from doing these things that I know would make America safe, and I anxiously await the court to complete its action one day or the other so I can get to work. He said he is changing the culture at the Immigration Services, which has a reputation for permissiveness, and reminding officials there uh, that... Um, They are on a first line of defense to keep out potential terrorists rather than the idea of bringing as many refugees as you can to meet some number set by the last administration or bring in, you know, as many visas as you can. We actually now are changing the culture to say, look, if you want to come to America, you convince me you are who you say you are and you're coming here for a period of time and then you'll go home and you won't do anything wrong when you uh, when you're here. He warned that Americans will likely feel some pain as he stiffens uh, defenses. That includes having cell phone searched and perhaps even copied by border guards. Um, 
I'm not sure what it means to have your cell phone copied, but he said by border guards in a tiny fraction of cases. It also means states need to quickly comply with a 2005 Real ID law that sets federal standards for valid IDs. Officials in a handful of states that are still struggling to comply with the law will have to tell residents that their IDs will no longer be valid for boarding airplanes, Mr. Kelly said, as the U.S. tries to fend off another 9-11 style airplane attack. So as the Supreme Court, uh, he's hopeful, makes a decision on uh, this travel ban. He's shoring up the position taken by the uh, Trump administration, suggesting that terror travel, as he put it, uh, is a growing concern. Primarily, he pointed out in Europe, but believes that there may be efforts to do uh, so here in the United States as well. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with John Malcolm, vice president for the Institute of Constitutional Government. We're going to talk about the uh, president's FBI nominee. He tweeted he intends to make Christopher Ray, who is not a stranger in Washington. He uh, worked in the uh, Bush um, 42 administration. We'll talk more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump announced today that he's going to nominate Christopher A. Ray, a white, a white collar criminal defense attorney who led Justice Department's criminal division under President George W. Bush. As the new FBI director, the announcement comes as the former FBI director, James Comey, who Mr. Trump abruptly fired in May, is set to testify on Capitol Hill Thursday concerning the Trump campaign's possible ties to Russia. And uh, most of the media is apoplectic about what they might uh, anticipate. Uh, anyway, here to talk about this uh, this announced nomination that will occur at some point in the not too distant future is John Malcolm. He's the vice president for the Institute for Constitution- uh, Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be with you, George. Now, people are uh, making a lot out of the timing of this announcement. Is there much to be made out of the fact that the uh, former FBI director is testifying tomorrow, and the president tweeted that he plans to uh, nominate uh, Christopher Ray uh, at some point in the future. M- anything to be made out of that? Well, people will make out of it whatever they want to yes. make out of it. The president said that he was hoping to make that announcement before he left on his first overseas trip. Uh, there is an acting uh, FBI director. It's not very good to have somebody in an acting capacity in that position for very long, so I don't make much out of the timing of it. I, you know, I look at qualifications of the nominee, who in this case, which in this case is superb. Well, let me ask you about um, this nominee. Uh, it's not a name that's known by many of us, but he does have a, a track record in Washington and in private practice. Yeah, well, I, I've known Chris for years, uh, actually. So he, he was, well, he's a Yale. he went to Yale, undergraduate Yale Law School. He then clerked for Michael Ludig on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, who was a very highly respected conservative judge. He's now the general counsel at Boeing. Chris then went back to Atlanta, which is where I was practicing law at the time. He was uh, in, he went to the firm of King and Spaulding, where he did white-collar work. He worked under Griffin Bell, who was the attorney general for Jimmy Carter. He then... So in the beginning of 1997, I left the U.S. Attorney's Office where I had been a prosecutor, and within a month or two after my leaving, he went to the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, as a prosecutor, and he was there for four years. Everybody I know who dealt with him thought he was superb, from defense attorneys to, you know, fellow prosecutors to FBI agents whom I had worked with for years and have great respect for. They thought incredibly highly of him. And then in 2001, 
After George W. Bush was elected, I went to Washington to be a deputy in the criminal division. Chris, who was a protege of Larry Thompson's, went to be Larry Thompson's principal deputy when Larry was the deputy attorney general. So I dealt with Chris a lot uh, in that capacity. And then when my immediate boss, Mike Chertoff, left the criminal division to go be a judge, Chris came down to head the criminal division. So for about nine or ten months, I was one of his deputies. So he was my, you know, my direct supervisor and boss. Uh, and I have the highest regard for him. I left uh, in, uh, in mid-2004. He stayed on until 2005. He was, received lots of accolades for the fabulous job that he did. And since then, he's been back heading up the white-collar crime section uh, at King and & Spalding and, and doing an excellent job. Now, his time at the Justice Department also coincided with Mr. Comey. He served as Mr. Ray's boss as Deputy Attorney General. Uh, any indication that their relationship might um, uh, reflect the, the choice that uh, was made by the president or um, how he might follow up in, uh, in that role? Oh, I doubt it. I mean, he had daily contact for years, uh, for about five years, actually, with both Bob Mueller uh, and Jim Comey. So when, you know, he was, he'd been the principal deputy to the deputy attorney general when it was Larry Thompson. And when he was head of the criminal division, Jim Comey was the deputy. He took Larry Thompson's place. And of course, he had daily briefings from Bob Mueller, who was the FBI director. So he knows these people incredibly well, but he's a very independent uh, person who will do things his own way. He's very principled and dedicated and intelligent. And you know, he certainly knows the, the ins and outs and highways and byways of Washington. Now, the FBI Agents Association President Thomas O'Connor said that it's vital that the next FBI director understand how employees of the Bureau do their work. Uh, would you say that uh, Mr. Ray fits that description? And uh, is it going to be a, a challenging transition for him as uh, the director? No, I don't think it'll be a challenging transition uh, for him. As I say, he, he's dealt with FBI agents for many, many years. I mean, as, as a defense attorney, you deal some with, with FBI agents. But for four years, he was a federal prosecutor, line attorney, like I had been, and dealt with FBI agents on cases all the time. And then, of course, for the five years that he was in very high-ranking uh, political positions at the Department of Justice, he dealt with the FBI on a daily basis. I have no doubt they hold him in high uh, regard, as they should. Now, he has sat through the Senate confirmation process once before, and that, of course, is always challenging. This is much more of a highly politically charged uh, confirmation process uh, that that's ahead. Uh, any thoughts on uh, the challenges he might face? I'm thinking in particular, for example, the fact that he served as personal attorney for Republican New Jersey Governor Chris Christie during the uh, Bridgegate scandal. He's given financially uh, to John McCain, for example, Senator McCain. He didn't give uh, to any of the candidates in the 2016 uh, presidential election. Any uh, roadblocks that you can anticipate? Well, when he was confirmed to the criminal division, I think it was by voice vote. I mean, he is a Republican. He served in political positions in a Republican administration, so the fact that he's given some money to some Republicans is certainly shouldn't be surprised. He is a white-collar uh, criminal defense lawyer, and, you know, Governor Christie was certainly under investigation. So all I can say about the fact that he represented Chris Christie uh, in the Bridgegate uh, investigation is that he did a damn good job because Chris Christie didn't end up getting indicted. You know, these are very, very tough times politically, so I certainly think that the Democrats were not of a mind to confirm anybody uh, unanimously or even close to it will try to make hay out of this. I assume that they will ask a lot of questions of Chris Ray about his independence and what pro- 
promises, if anything, he's given to the president. I'm assuming the answer is he gave him no promises, and he will be principled and independent and, and do his job in a nonpartisan way. He's well aware of the fact that the FBI represents all of us and not just conservatives and Republicans. Uh, and But I, at, at the end of the day, there is no legitimate reason not to confirm mm-hmm. Chris Ray, and so he will be. What kind of an FBI director do we need moving forward? Uh, Mr. Comey made himself uh, much more... Um, uh, available and present. He sp- spoke much more than we've seen in the past. What kind of an FBI director do you think we need moving forward uh, in a follow-up to the now fired uh, James Comey? Well, I, I, I think the qualifications for an FBI director should never change. They should be intelligence, dedication, professionalism, integrity, and fair-mindedness, uh, and, and somebody who acts with respect to the rule of law in a principled, nonpartisan way. And I certainly think that uh, that Chris Ray fits that bill. Jim Comey was certainly more open to the public. Certainly some people thought that was a good thing. Uh, other people thought it was not so good. I mean, one of the reasons why he was uh, let go is that uh, the, the Democrats blamed Jim Comey for Hillary Clinton's loss. The Republicans thought that Jim Comey went too easy on Hillary Clinton and gave her a pass. And I've heard uh, that there were some FBI agents who were upset about the fact that Director Comey had thrown the FBI into the middle of a political maelstrom. I'm not meaning to take anything away from, from Jim Comey. I knew Jim Comey, too, when I was at the Department of Justice. I think he's a fine individual. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think it was time for him to go. And, uh, and I think Chris Ray will be uh, a, a very worthy successor. John Malcolm, thank you so much for talking with us. Good to be with you. Appreciate it. Again, John Malcolm is the vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. Christopher Ray was announced by uh, virtue of a tweet by the president as his pick for FBI director. There were a number of people on that uh, short list. For example, the president had also been considering uh, John Pistol, a former deputy FBI director who was President Barack Obama's head of the transportation uh, secretary administration. He also considered former Senator Joseph Lieberman of Connecticut. Mr. Lieberman took himself out of the running uh, and the uh, um, the choice that the president has now made uh, and will make formal at some point in the not too distant future is Christopher Ray. Uh, and we'll uh, certainly follow that uh, process and the formal announcement as it's expected at some time very soon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we're going to talk with Maureen Ferguson. She's a senior policy advisor at the Catholic Association. We're going to talk about the unanimous passing of H.R. 390, the Refugee Relief Act that would provide uh, help to those who are the victims of genocide in the Middle East, Christians, Yazidis, and others. That's coming up right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, last night, the U.S. House of Representatives unanimously passed the Iraq and Syria Relief and Accountability Act. Uh, the bill allocates much needed resources to the victims of genocide in the Middle East. Christians, Yazidis, and other religious minorities. Here to talk with us about that and what happens next as it makes its way to the Senate is Maureen Ferguson. She's Senior Policy Advisor with the Catholic Association. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Sure, I'm glad to be with you. Now, many of us are unaware of this act that passed, as I mentioned, unanimously last night. So let's begin by talking about the Iraq and Syria Relief and Accountability Act. Sure. Well, I mean, just to give a little bit of background to your listeners, Um, It has been about a year, a little more than a year, since the Obama administration 
declared that the conditions on the ground in places like Iraq and, and Syria, that there's actually a genocide, a genocide, that's a very strong word, a genocide of Christians, Yazidis, yes. and other religious minorities, um, people being forced from their homes, churches burned, bombed, looted, um, people sold into slavery, the women and children into the worst kind of slavery, sexual slavery. And um, so literally there's a genocide of Christians going on in the Middle East, but yet none of the U.S. aid is reaching them. None of the humanitarian aid is, is going to these Christians. So this bill that Congressman Chris Smith, and uh, he's a Republican and it's co-sponsored by a Democrat, a woman named Anna Eshoo, Congresswoman Anna Eshoo. Um, these have been two real leaders on this issue. They passed this bill unanimously in the House, and it would direct more of the aid to some of the groups on the ground that are actually providing humanitarian assistance to these victims, really survivors of genocide. Well, this is so encouraging because I know many of us have been uh, concerned once that designation was made under the previous administration, things seem to have uh, come to a halt. And uh, Congressman Chris Smith and now uh, Representative Eshoo have both provided some leadership on this uh, this issue that is much needed. Uh, We're going to talk about the details in just a moment, but it will make its way now to the Senate. Do we have any idea what the prospects are for it moving quickly through the Senate and onto the president's desk? I think there are real prospects. There are several senators who have honed in on this as a really important issue. Um, and I do think it will move quickly through the Senate. But senators do need a little bit of pressure. Mm-hmm. They need to hear from people. Um, because on this issue, quite frankly, um, there's been what it's been referred to as a scandal of silence about about this issue. And now that there's been a formal genocide declaration, uh, one of the congressional leaders, Congressman Jeff Fortenberry, he says, what's worse than the scandal of silence is to actually call it genocide and then do nothing yeah. about it. Yeah. So, again, th- this bill um, that moved unanimously through the House, I do believe that it will uh, have a good shot at passage in the Senate. And President Trump has been very outspoken uh, on this issue in support of the persecuted Christians. Uh, Vice President Pence has been incredibly outspoken on this issue. I was at a, a prayer breakfast with him just yesterday in which he made a real impassioned plea for us to be praying for the persecuted Christians and, um, you know, really just some very strong words from Vice President Pence yesterday on this issue. So, so it's encouraging, but we're not there yet. So yes. I would encourage your listeners to pick up the phone and call your U.S. senators. You can just call the Capitol switchboard and they'll patch you through to your two U.S. senators and just encourage them to do something to help these victims of Christian persecution. And I think we tend to underestimate the value of that kind of personal contact. We assume that uh, they're aloof to hearing from their constituents. But I can tell you, I worked in a congressional office for, for many years, years ago. Those phone calls make a difference. And uh, the few of us who pick up a phone and pick up a call and make that call, rather, and express our interest in, concern and support for, in this case, House Resolution 390, can make a significant significant difference. Many of us are praying. Many of us express concern. This is a tangible way that we can have an impact uh, in helping to support uh, particularly persecuted Christians, but others as well uh, through um, the institution of our government. Now, let's talk about some of the key provisions of House Resolution 390 that, again, authorizes uh, and directs the administration. What are some of the things that this will do? 
So probably the most important thing or the most immediately important thing the bill would do is that it would um, allow some of our government humanitarian assistance to go to these organizations that are on the ground actually providing the humanitarian aid and relief to these genocide survivors. So groups like the Knights of Columbus, Aid to the Church in Need, that's where all of the Christian refugees have gone, and not just Christian refugees, but a lot of the Yazidi and the Muslim minority sects in the region have also gone to these church-based organizations for need, because what has happened, sadly, is that the UN, the United Nations refugee camps, have themselves been hijacked by radicals, and they are not safe. They target Christians that e- even at the refugee camps. So the Christians don't go there, and therefore they don't get the UN aid, and all of the United States aid goes through the United Nations. So this bill would say, hey, let's, let's fund the organizations that are actually providing relief to the survivors of genocide. So that's the most important thing. Um, secondly, also very important, is this bill would um, conduct criminal investigations into these war crimes. It would encourage foreign governments to, you know, cooperate with uh, rounding up the perpetrators of this violence, sharing of security databases, that sort of thing. So, um, so it does many things to address the ongoing genocide, and it does many things to uh, help the survivors of the genocide. Now, since 2013, uh, Representative Smith has held nine hearings that are focused on atrocities in Iraq and Syria. Last December, he actually traveled to Erbil in uh, Kurdistan in the region of Iraq to meet with genocide survivors. He knows firsthand, has a passion about this. And my hope is that as followers of Christ, we would hear this opportunity, take it seriously and take the next step. And that is to communicate with your U.S. senator and let him or her know that this is important to us, that we ought to uh, make sure that U.S. dollars, our tax dollars, are going to support those who are most uh, needy in this region because the United Nations, as you just pointed out, uh, is not uh, uh, diverting funds to this group in particular. And uh, in the United States, where we have de- declared this to be genocide, it seems to me we have a moral obligation. Uh, absolutely. And I would like to give out the phone number of the Capitol switchboard so people could pick up the absolutely. phone and, and share how they feel. And, you know, I'll, I'll give out that number now and then I'll repeat it in a minute. But the number is 202-224-3121. And I think sometimes people hesitate to call because they don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. They feel like, oh, I don't know the details of the issue, that kind of thing. It doesn't matter. All you have to do is speak from your heart and say, I hear about a genocide of Christians in the Middle East, and I hope you'll do something to stop that and to help these people. I mean, that, that's all you need to say. The congressional aide who's answering the phone knows the bill on the floor that does this. So you don't, you don't need to know the bill number. You don't need to be able to speak in legislative parlance. All you have to do is say, I care about these poor people that are being persecuted at the hands of ISIS, and the United States government needs to do something uh, to help them. We need some humanitarian assistance. So I'll just give out that phone number one more time, and literally it will take you five minutes. Yeah, it's if so that. easy mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. So 202-224-3121, and you just tell them your state, and they will patch you right through to your two U.S. senators. So it's two phone calls you need to make, one to each, or you call the same number. You can call it twice. 
and um, and they'll patch you through to your two U.S. senators. Well, Maureen, I appreciate so much your uh, reminding us of this opportunity and uh, encouraging us to not just be informed, but to be active in helping to support uh, those who are suffering uh, the, at the hands of ISIS, genocide and persecution. Thank you so much. Sure. I'm really glad to be on with you. Thank you. Again, that number 202-224-3121. That's the capital switchboard. You just tell them I'm from the state of Washington. I'm from the state of Oregon. I'd like to speak to my senators. They'll either give you the phone number or they'll uh, connect you directly. In, in most cases, they'll connect you directly. But since there are two, you might ask for a number. In either case, you have the opportunity to speak with someone who will pick up the phone. And literally, as Maureen suggested, you don't need to know all of the details, but uh, just say there's a I understand there's a bill before the Senate. Uh, it will support victims of genocide, uh, Christians, Yazidis and others. And I urge you as my senator uh, to support this legislation. And that's essentially all you need to do. You don't need to answer questions. You don't need to go jump through hoops. Just make that uh, make that pronouncement. And for those of us who uh, pray for, are concerned about, and express interest in the, the plight of the persecuted church, this is a tangible opportunity to make a real difference. And we're talking about taxpayer dollars. This is money you're giving to the government, and they distribute through various means. Some of it goes to the UN, and they are not addressing the needs of uh, these particular groups. So, 202-224-3121. Man up, pull up your big uh, big girl pants, and call. Quick break, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the ship's are arriving here in the Portland metro area to help celebrate Rose Festival. And I think I've mentioned before that my maiden name was Rose. So I assumed that Rose Festival was all about my family. I also thought the Lloyd Center was the Lord Center, and I thought it was some sort of a Christian ministry, so I wasn't a very bright kid. Anyway, ships are arriving to help celebrate Rose Festival. They're going to moor along the waterfront between the Steel and Hawthorne Bridges, and that started this afternoon. Uh, several bridge lifts uh, were uh, expected earlier today and through tomorrow, and they could last upwards of 30 minutes apiece. So if you're planning on crossing the bridge, you better have a lot of time or take an alternate route. For those who need to cross the Wednesday and Thursday afternoon, an alternate route is, in fact, advised. The Steel, Broadway, and Burnside bridges will be at uh, uh, the lifting uh, position at various times during the day. You can use I-405, which is the Fremont Bridge, or I-5, which is the Markham Bridge, to cross the Willamette. Also, the Hawthorne will be, uh, uh, rather, will not uh, raise for the ship arrivals, and the Ross Island is another good choice, depending on your destination. The Morrison Bridge is down to one lane in each direction for construction and should also be avoided, especially if the bridge is up. You're going to find yourself waiting in Gresham to get across the uh, get across the uh, Morrison Bridge. So that's starting today. Also, max lines will be delayed during the afternoon of the bridge lifts. Also, several bus lines may need to detour or they're going to be delayed. TriMet has details on the lines affected at their website, TriMet.org. And the time window for ship arrival, arrivals rather is officially one to four. You're pretty much out of the uh, uh, out of the uh, Trouble zone today, but tomorrow uh, you may need to uh, be a bit more careful. The schedule times tend to vary, so you can't say with certainty what time a ship is coming in. The 2016 arrivals were much further into the afternoon, closer to three to four. 
Um, so again, um, tomorrow, you just have to kind of keep your ear to the ground. The ships are going to leave on Monday morning, June the 12th. That's generally around 10 a.m., and that's not a long, drawn-out process. That happens uh, on one day, so you don't have to be quite as careful. In other Rose Festival news, the Junior Rose Festival Parade, um, well, was 1 o'clock earlier today in the Hollywood District, uh, and you can... Um, uh, actually watch that on television. I'm not really sure where uh, that's going to be broadcast, but one of the networks here has that uh, that broadcast. I had the chance to, uh, I think it was for KGW, to host that one year. That was a lot of fun. Um, you know, you're, you got a microphone and you're talking to kids in the parade and throwing it back to somebody somewhere else. The people that were also hosting with me, they were big name people. I was a nobody, but they insisted on a limousine. So we rode the limousine from KGW, the building downtown, to the Hollywood District, which is about a five to seven minute ride. And this big, ostentatious limousine, the only limousine ride I've ever had. Uh, but I guess when you have a big name, you can uh, you can demand such things. It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever done, but it was kind of fun, too. You know, you get out of the thing and people are looking to see, oh, this must really be somebody in the limousine. First person goes out. Oh, yeah, that confirms my suspicion. I step out. And people are like, OK, where's the where's the uh, popcorn Heart. We're uh, we're done here. Anyway, uh, the Grand Floral Parade is coming up. Uh, not this, but next Saturday. That's the tenth uh, of June in downtown Portland, ten a.m. to two p.m. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is no more. So this is a if you're going to uh, attend a parade in the Portland area, this is the one to uh, not to miss. Rather, downtown Portland will be the the. Uh, Termination point traveling from the Veterans Memorial Coliseum to Providence Park, um, rosefestival.org for more information on that. Other events you might want to keep your eyes and ears uh, poised on the dragon boat races. Those are really a lot of fun to watch. You've seen them practicing on the Willamette River for months. If you cross any of the bridges, now you can catch the city's most mythical paddlers steer their dragons in the human-powered boat race of the summer. That's 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturday. And again, that's the 10th of June. Might be a little bit tough since the parade is also on Saturday, June the 10th, but it uh, continues through Sunday the 11th. That might be a better time to plan to watch the uh, dragon boat races. That's at Tom McCall Waterfront Park. It's free. Again, rosefestival.org for more information. As I mentioned, Fleet Week, eight ships are going to tie up in Portland for tours and sailor greetings, including U.S. Coast Guard cutters, two Canadian Coast Guard ships, two U.S. Navy ships, and a brand new um, literal I guess that's the uh, way to pronounce it, uh, combat ships. A couple of years ago, because my nephew is in the Navy and he was in the Portland area during Rose Festival, uh, we got tickets or however he arranged it for us to ride from, I don't remember if it was in Astoria or from wherever they start, uh, into the Portland metro area. That was the most fun I've had in a long time. As I mentioned, uh, the docking times this time around vary. Tours generally are available from 9 to 3.30 p.m. That's Wednesday through uh, Sunday at Tom McCall Waterfront Park. And again, for all the details for this and everything else, rosefestival.org. Uh, I'm, I'm really not f- thoroughly convinced that it isn't really about my family. I'm still looking into that. Can I go to Ancestry.com and find out if there's some genetic link to the Rose Festival of Portland? I don't know. Tomorrow on the program, we are going to talk with John Stone Street. He's the co-author of A Practical Guide to Culture. 
helping the next generation navigate today's world. You know, it seems like when you're in the middle of a thing, it just sort of happens, but there's a way to understand what's happening around you and perhaps to even anticipate what's going to happen next in a general sense. And we're going to talk about this practical guide to culture, uh, something that we, uh, that young people in particular may not understand uh, is a thing uh, to be understood, but we're going to talk with Mr. Stone Street about this guide to help the next generation navigate today's world. And then on Friday, um, we're going to lighten up, and that's what we typically do on Friday, so we're looking forward uh, to that. We'll cover some of the news that we wouldn't normally have an opportunity to cover during the course of a very serious news week. And it's always fun for us because we're not quite as tethered to what's happening moment by moment. I'm still collecting information, bits of news and stories that are developing uh, throughout the day, but we don't talk about them on Friday. We do other things. We'll get back to that on Monday. And uh, that always makes Mondays a little bit tough, but uh, that's what we do here. And uh, in fact, I actually fast from news and information Saturday and Sunday. That's my homage to the sovereignty of God. He's got the whole world in his hands. Things are not going to spiral out of control because he's pretty much holding things together. Uh, so I can rest in not knowing uh, precisely what's happening uh, in uh, every uh, every detail. And I can get back to that on on Monday. So anyway, that's what's coming up on um, Thursday and Friday. And I hope you will plan to join us. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton. He's the engineer of today's program. And James Blind, who you might notice, does some engineering himself when he's forced to do so. We practically have to handcuff him to the board because he's got lots of other responsibilities here and will avoid engineering whenever possible. But he's also the producer of today's program, which means he helps to arrange the guests and other varied tasks. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.